This is a Federal News Network podcast. Ransomware, hackers hijacking systems and demanding big money to release them, has become more than a threat for state and local governments and school districts. So far, the federal government has been lucky. Now a coalition of companies and nonprofits called the Institute for Security and Technology has come up with a long list of recommendations for dealing with ransomware. For more, the president and CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance and former White House cybersecurity special assistant, Michael Daniel. Mr. Daniel, good to have you on. Yes, thanks for having me. Tell us about the genesis of these recommendations. A bunch of organizations, a bunch of companies came together to attack this issue. How did that group form and under what guise? It really came about because those of us in the industry have been watching an evolution in ransomware over the last few years. You know, if you roll the clock back, Tom, to, you know, 2013, 2014, ransomware was primarily an economic nuisance. The ransoms affected primarily individual computers and ransoms were a couple of hundred bucks. Now, as you mentioned, they're affecting state and local governments, school systems, but they're also affecting hospitals and other parts of critical infrastructure. And the ransoms are well into the hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. So ransomware has really become a national security and a public health and safety threat. And so under those conditions, many of us in the industry felt like it was important to really take this problem head on. And so that was the genesis of why this group came together. It's almost perhaps a matter of time before a federal agency gets hit. I'm almost surprised that it hasn't happened already to uh, some sort of significant degree. So, yes, I mean, this threat is continuing to grow. And unless we do something about it, it's not going to get any better on its own. And so what are the top recommendations, especially for the government itself, to start to organize around this issue? I know that it has caught the attention of Secretary Mayorkas of DHS, who I think contributed to your report in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And I think you can see that certainly the National Security Council, the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, they're all taking this issue very seriously. When you look through our report, we really focus in on trying to do four things. One is we want to deter more actors from using ransomware in the first place. We want to really disrupt the actors that are currently using ransomware. We want to better prepare businesses and governments to be resilient to ransomware. And we want to enable folks to respond better to ransomware if they do have a ransomware incident. So within that, there are really five recommendations that I would highlight for you. One is that the federal government really needs to make a coordinated international diplomatic effort to reduce the safe havens, the countries that are harboring a lot of these cyber criminals. Two, the U.S. government really needs to put together a sustained whole-of-government intelligence-driven anti-ransomware campaign, and it needs to be coordinated at the White House level. Third, governments should establish a cyber response and recovery fund to support ransomware response, and they should mandate that organizations report ransomware payments, and they should require organizations to consider alternatives before making payments. Fourth, there should be an internationally coordinated effort to devise a ransomware framework, like how do you respond to ransomware, kind of like we did for the cybersecurity framework a number of years ago. And lastly, we need to really impose some additional requirements on cryptocurrency exchanges to comply with well-known best practices in the financial industry. Yes, because in that last point, a lot of the payment demands are for payment in cryptocurrency. Why is that, by the way? Well, almost all the payment demands are for cryptocurrency, and it's because it's much, much harder to trace. 
and it's much more anonymous and it flows in various ways that make it much more difficult for law enforcement to track down the payments. Sure. I guess if you send a check for $10,000 or a million dollars to some address in Russia, it's pretty easy to follow. Yes, that's right. We're speaking with Michael Daniel, former White House cybersecurity special assistant, now CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance. And to some extent, it looks like CISA at DHS and, as we mentioned earlier, the secretary is actually onto this issue already. He spoke before the Chamber of Commerce just a few days ago and said, yeah, this is something we have to get behind. So it sounds like you're getting traction early with this report and with these recommendations. I think that's right. We've gotten a very good reception from the executive branch. There was a hearing on Capitol Hill recently that also uh, where the report got a good reception from uh, various members of Congress. So I think we are getting traction. I think it's because many people recognize the threat that ransomware poses. And it's probably encouraging that the White House has fairly quickly filled the major cybersecurity positions available to it in the White House, in the National Security Council and elsewhere, where some of those had been vacant for a while during the prior administration. Yes, this administration has clearly prioritized cybersecurity as an issue that it is going to focus on. And yes, absolutely, in terms of filling positions with people, they've done that. They've also you know, begun issuing policies. So it's, it's really clear that this administration takes cybersecurity very, very seriously. And state and local agencies, federal agencies for that matter, school districts and city governments and so forth, is there anything in your experience they can do in the meantime to better protect themselves? Well, you know, the interesting thing about ransomware is a lot of the best practices that cybersecurity experts have talked about for many years are applicable to defending yourself against ransomware. So, for example, using good password management, using multi-factor authentication, segmenting your network so that it's not all one big network where you get in once and you get everywhere, right? All of those sort of technical practices are still applicable to ransomware. But I think the other thing is really thinking through and having a plan in place for what are you going to do if you get hit with ransomware and sort of thinking that through ahead of time is a big help. I wonder if just having replicated virtual machine copies of your major systems kept offline is a good practice. And then if something is hit with ransomware, say, great, keep it and erase the whole thing and just spin up a new one. Absolutely. I mean, anything you can do to make yourself more resilient to what the bad guys are trying to do is beneficial. So absolutely keeping backup copies of data, you know, that are offline and inaccessible. Um, Also looking at how you store data. I mean, for example, many private sector companies, one of the things that we have found is that the bad guys will, when they gain access to a network, one of the things they will do is they will look to see if you have an insurance policy, if you're a private sector company. And then they will look to see what the maximum payout for that insurance policy is. And then magically, the ransom is set to exactly that maximum payout. So protecting that kind of information for your private sector company is really, really important. And do you think there's a tie-in between this effort that you have established to kind of take on ransomware and the cybersecurity maturity model certification program that applies to supply chain vendors in the defense supply chain who may hold data that is the government's and those companies could be subject to ransomware? It seems like there's a connection here. Absolutely. I would say that the connection is really that what you're seeing is that the threats that are out there in the general cyberspace environment 
are just demanding that companies reach a higher level of cybersecurity maturity than many of them have done so far. And particularly if you are in the supply chain for any federal agency, any government agency for that matter, you're probably going to have to start meeting some requirements for cybersecurity. If you're in critical infrastructure and other parts of the economy, you're probably going to see more and more of those kinds of requirements emerge. And with the group that established the study we've been talking about, the Institute for Security and Technology, are any of the cloud people involved in that effort? Sure. I mean, you can definitely see like we had Microsoft very heavily involved and we had some representatives from Amazon that participated in this. And we also consulted broadly across the industry, even for people and companies that weren't listed as major contributors. There was a lot of consultation that went on with that group. Because I would think cloud exposure to ransomware would be a big issue. One, because the companies are extremely rich that are the big cloud providers. And second, nobody is totally invulnerable. That's right. You know, it's interesting with the cloud, you get some benefits, right? I mean, you saw this, for example, with the exchange vulnerabilities that came out a couple of months ago, where Microsoft was very rapidly able to fix anybody that was using the cloud version of Office 365, like pretty much instantaneously that was addressed. On the other hand, as you pointed out, you now with the cloud service providers have this huge aggregation of risk. And so gaining access to the cloud in an unauthorized manner could give you the ability to affect a very large number of organizations all at the same time. So absolutely, I think that our shift to the cloud's changes some of the security dynamics that are out there. And just looking at this at the extreme for a second before we wind up, can you imagine a scenario, suppose a major cloud that has government data, lots of applications, I mean, there's limitless, or DOD for that matter, would somehow be held for ransom? Can you see the United States responding beyond merely diplomatically and beyond law enforcement to perhaps militarily in some manner? It's hard to imagine a scenario that gets you all the way there that is, you know, sort of immediately plausible, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. If you had an aggregation of circumstances that really put public health and safety at risk, that really threaten people's lives uh, directly, then yes. I mean, I certainly think you could see a whole range of options all the way up through and including military, you know, technical operations. Well, let's hope it doesn't get that far and people read and act on your report. Michael Daniel is former White House cybersecurity special assistant, now CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the ransomware report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. 
Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy 
And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So that the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, it's seeing a forest despite the trees, it's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. 
I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.